largest country in Southeast Asia, home to more than 267 million people living on over 17,000 islands, the culture of Indonesia remains mostly unknown in the West. This is particularly true in regard to its unique cuisines. Even New York City, which is home to hundreds of restaurants from neighboring Thailand and Vietnam, has only a handful of establishments serving Indonesian food, mostly in the outer boroughs. In her new illustrated cookbook, Coconut and Sambal, Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen, chef and Bon Appetit contributor Lara Lee reveals the secrets behind authentic Indonesian cookery that she learned from her grandmother. It's published by Bloomsbury, and I'm delighted that it brings Lara Lee to our show now to discuss this unique style of cooking and also to give us a little respite from all of today's discussions about the election. Uh, hi, welcome to our show. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Leonard. It's such a pleasure to join you. <laughs> Is Indonesian cuisine particularly diverse because of, of the nature of the country, an archipelago where there are over 700 languages, 300 ethnic groups, where every major religion is practiced? Also, uh, because of its location uh, with such a wide range of neighboring countries? It is, and it has such a complex and interesting history, which has really also defined the cuisine. You know, there are 17,500 islands, of which 6,000 are populated. And Indonesia has been uh, a trade route for more than a 1,000 years. So, you know, it had Chinese and Arabic and Indian and Malay traders traveling throughout the country and bringing with them spices and produce from their respective countries, also European traders too, who introduced chilies and potatoes mm. and so on. So, um, as you because, when it was a Dutch country, colony, it was a Dutch colony for 350 it years. It was a Dutch colony, and also um, parts of Indonesia was a Portuguese uh, colony at at one stage as well. So there was, you know, a, a heavy influence of, um, you know, Dutch kind of culinary influence that goes into kind of Indonesian patisserie and Indonesian cakes as well. And as you travel across different islands, you'll find, you know, um, different communities like Chinese communities that have heavily influenced the cuisine, uh, you know, in the north of Sumatra, in Aceh, you'll find a lot of Indian and Arabic spices. So the flavor profiles do change, but also because the landscape is so diverse and what grows in different areas, ranging from yams in Papua, in Indonesia, you know, down to in Bali, where it's very tropical, uh, in, you know, lots of tropical fruits and tropical uh, vegetables are grown there. So, and so cattle the, the there in Bali. Change. Aren't, cattle aren't cattle indigenous to Bali? The buffalo, the buffalo is indigenous yeah. to a lot, a, lot, a lot of areas of Indonesia. So they do eat a lot of buffalo meat, actually. And in fact, um, buffalo rendang, which is this lovely, dry, caramelized curry, uh, you know, buffalo is a really a real celebrated animal. And it, it's often slaughtered as part of festivals as well. Mm. So certainly cattle is, is eaten in, in many parts of Indonesia. Mm. Uh, except for the areas that are Islamic, it is the world's largest Islamic country. Although the book has more than 100 recipes, you say it's a, a tiny slice of what Indonesian cuisine is, which is just incredibly diverse. I'm quoting, every region that you go to across thousands of islands has different distinct flavors. Now, mm. isn't that reflected in your own background, which is quite diverse? You're Timorese and Chinese on your father's side. Your mother is Australian. You grew up in Sydney, currently 
live and work in England. <laughs> Do you identify with any of those nationalities the most? You know, for the last decade, I think I've asked myself where home is uh, many, many times. And uh, I moved to London nine years ago. But I think what has uh, prompted me to write Coconut and Sambal was really that um, growing up in Sydney, my Indonesian grandmother moved from Timor to Sydney to live with us. And I think the, you know, growing up in a westernised country, uh, you know, often a, a lot of those cultural influences are lost as you grow up. But what was really wonderful in terms of my link back to Indonesia was that my grandmother would always cook these wonderful feasts of Indonesian food and on, there on the table every night for dinner, she'd push my mother out of the kitchen and she'd take over. And there on the table were, you know, amazing feasts of gado gado, which is a vegetable salad with peanut sauce or Indonesian fried rice called nasi goreng, uh, you know, chicken satay with pickles and so on. And so those are the memories that I, the, my, my earliest food memories are of Indonesian food. And those are my memories of my grandmother that I've carried with me into adulthood long after she passed away. So interestingly for me, when I moved from Sydney to London, what I felt uh, when, at first when I felt homesick, the thing that really felt the strongest was my, um, I longed for Indonesian food and Indonesian flavors because in London, there's only two Indonesian restaurants and a very small Indonesian community. And so that was really what prompted me to want to write the book and to, you know, recapture those recipes that my grandmother cooked for me when I was little and to try to put, you know, those recipes into my own kitchen um, and to celebrate her food. You know, for me, home is, uh, I guess, very much linked to food. And for me, my soul food is Indonesian cuisine. So I think, you know, I, I do have many, many homes. But the, the thing that makes me feel the most comfort and joy is when I eat Indonesian flavors. And, and particularly during lockdown and, you know, with COVID and a pandemic, the thing that I'm always drawn back to are those comfort foods that bring back really happy memories of family sitting around the table together. Um, it's quite amazing how evocative food is, you know. And, and you uh, say that you found recipe books that your grandmother had handwritten, which was odd because recipes in Indonesia are traditionally passed down orally. Yes, it's true. And, and there's really not a tradition um, of keeping a written record of recipes, you know, across Indonesia. So you'll find that there really isn't very much of a cookbook culture within the country itself. So there are Certainly a few, a couple of, you know, a handful of celebrity chefs that have written cookbooks and you'll find in some bookshops. But generally speaking, the majority of Indonesians wouldn't buy a cookbook. They would learn the recipe from their mother and from their grandmother and then from the great grandmother. So recipes are very much multi-generational and passed down from, you know, grandmother to daughter to, to granddaughter um, or grandson. And, um, and what was remarkable for me was that my grandmother did happen to write down some recipe books. And... The reason why, which is, I guess, hers is an exceptional circumstance, was because um, when she was 36 years old, her husband, my, gra my grandfather, passed away from a heart attack. And so she was widowed at 36 with four children and needing to find a way to support her family, she turned to cooking and to food and opened a bakery. And because she opened a bakery to support herself, she needed to write down those recipes because um, as the bakery became more and more popular, she had to hire staff. So because of this, this um, amazing collection of recipes are in, uh, in two very yellowed and very stained recipe books. 
that um, my aunties have kept and have now given to me. And I'm so grateful to have them sitting on my bookshelf in London. But that was really the starting point for what became not just a cookbook about my grandmother's recipes, but really I, what I wanted to do as I you know, began to research the cookbook was to you know, give um, a voice to and shine a light to the very diverse cuisine of Indonesia and to try to cover as many uh, cuisines and you know, uh, delicacies as I could in the book. So it, it's really a collection of recipes of my grandmother, but also of the many Indonesians that I met uh, as I researched the book who invited me into their home and taught me their grandmother's recipes. So it, it really was a wonderful process writing the book as well. But you, you write in the introduction that you remember growing up in Sydney eating sausage rolls for breakfast with peanut sauce. Uh, that's a, an Indonesian standard with a, an, in, I mean, an Australian standard with an Indonesian flourish. So um, are there any fusion dishes that you've created that combine Australian and Indonesian cuisine now that you are a professional chef in Britain? Oh, well, you know, I feel like there's always a bit of a marriage of Indonesian food and Australian food when you pop anything or chuck anything, as we would say in Australian, chuck, chuck something on the barbie. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I definitely mix the two. And so if I'm having a barbecue in the summer with friends, there's definitely chicken satay with peanut sauce, but there's also sausages mm -hmm. on the barbie. There's also steak. And what, and what I do love to do um, is when I eat, whenever I eat steak, I always have a jar of sambal in the fridge. And sambal is a hot chili relish that's a condiment in Indonesia. And you'll find that wherever you go in Indonesia, you know, it's a very diverse country, but every single island will always have its own regional sambal, which is always spicy, but often flavoured with different ingredients. So um, for me, I always keep a jar of tomato sambal in the fridge and in the freezer. So I make big, big batches of it. And when I have a steak, I, have a, I put the sambal on the side, whereas my husband will grab the tomato ketchup. But for me, I'll always have, you know, sambal and, uh, and steak. And one of the other kind of crazy things I suppose I seem to do, I think moving to London, um, they love eating a fish finger sandwich here. I don't know if you guys eat that in New York, but uh, it's like a crumbed little fish finger. And so um, I'll put mayonnaise and fish fingers on the sandwich, to on toasted sourdough bread, and then a big blob of sambal on top as well, and some um, fried shallot. And I have to say, it's really delicious. You have to try it to believe it. But um, sausage rolls and peanut sauce, I will, uh, you know, always be eating that because it's a really strange comfort food for me. But I remember my mum buying us sausage rolls when we go to the swimming pool. Every time we went to the swimming pool to swim, after uh, swimming lessons, we'd get some sausage rolls, and then my grandmother would always have peanut sauce at home, so I'd just dip it in and have a little bite. <laughs> Very delicious. <laughs> and you say that the title of your cookbook, Coconut and Sambal, uh, is a reflection of the fact that uh, the, those two ingredients are as ubiquitous on the table uh, at a, an Indonesian meal as salt and pepper are in the mm. West. Mm. Yes, well, I think what's really interesting about Indonesia is the way Indonesians eat. And as I mentioned before, it is a very diverse country. So, you know, on the Hindu island of Bali, they'll eat lots of pork because, uh, you know, they're Hindu. Um, it's a, it's a, they're allowed to eat pork, but you won't find pork in, uh, a, you know, a number of the different kind of more um, heavily Muslim-based cities or Islamic cities. Um, but uh, in, in, in terms of... Um, 
Oh, I've, I've forgotten what your question was just then. <laughs> well, I, I just said coconut and sambal with like salt and pepper on a Western oh, yes, table. Yes, sorry, thank you. So the, so the Indonesian table is so interesting because, you know, whether you're in Bali or Sulawesi or Sumatra or Java, you know, when you sit down at the table, what unites Indonesian cuisine as a whole is the sensory aspect of eating. So you'll find, you know, a big plate of rice. Um, there'll always be one or two sambals on the table. Um, there'll usually be a krupuk crackers, which, you know, is an Indonesian uh, cracker similar to a prawn cracker that stimulates the appetite. And then a multitude of dishes to complement that from vegetables to a curry to fried fish to satay and so on. But what you'll find is that um, coconut, you know, there are coconut trees uh, are bountiful in Indonesia and the coconut is used in amazing ways in the Indonesian kitchen. So, you know, the, uh, when the young coconut is cracked open, the coconut water will be poured out and, you know, drunk by the children or the adults at the table. The young coconut flesh will be used in desserts. Grated coconut will be used to mix into warm salads and to, you know, to flavour different stir fries. Then you've obviously got the creamy coconut milk and the mature coconut that will obviously thicken curries and, you know, be turned into lovely other, um, other dishes as well. And then the coconut shell is used to create utensils like um, bowls and spoons. Mm. And then discarded grated coconut is actually um, kept and then used to scrub stains off tiles and off the floor. So no part <laughs> of the coconut is wasted. And, and it's a really wonderful kind of no-waste philosophy that Indonesians have, which I really fell in love with. And that even comes down to, um, you know, the eating of meat. It's very much a nose-to-tail philosophy. So they really celebrate offal in Indonesia, and sometimes you will find things like satay, um, you know, satay in, uh, with a chicken intestine or, you know, um, different types of lung and heart are being used in soup. And, you know, I think once you get past that notion of thinking that, you know, uh, it, it depends if you're a person that likes offal or not, but, you know, um, once you kind of get past the thought that you might be eating brain or lung, it's, it's really delicious because it works so wonderfully with the, the flavours that they use, with the sweetness and the sourness and the heat. Uh, and the umami of their dishes. So um, it's a real celebration, but certainly the, the title of the, of the cookbook comes from what I experienced every time I sat at the Indonesian table, and that was seeing the coconut used so beautifully and eating sambal, which gives that sultry heat sensation. You know, you eat a little bit of sambal with every bite of food is the traditional way to do things, and it's just wonderful. <laughs> You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. My guest is Lara Lee, who has written a cookbook called Coconut and Sambal, Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen. Uh, it is published by Bloomsbury. Uh, many of the dishes contain substitutions for ingredients that might be hard to find in the West. So how did you go about deciding what to use for those substitutions? Mm. It was quite a process, really, when I was um, recipe testing the book because a lot of um, the rest, I, I collected 300 recipes um, over a six-month period of research uh, on Indonesian soil, and I brought them back to my London kitchen. And what I wanted to do was to really to pay respect to those recipes by um, trying to maintain the authenticity of them as much as possible, but also with the awareness that um, you know, sometimes uh, I certainly have done this before. Um, I've bought cookbooks where you open up the, the recipe and the ingredients list are so extensive. And, you know, there's a lot of ingredients that you just think I will just never be able to find that in any of my local shops and I will never cook that recipe. And, 
And I didn't want that to happen. So I, I, the, the, I guess the recipes that I've curated in the cookbook, and there's 85 recipes in total, you know, ranging from, you know, really lovely vegetable dishes to meat to poultry to snacks and sweets and so on. But what I wanted to do was to ensure that the recipes that I did select were things that could be recreated in the domestic kitchen um, while maintaining the integrity and the flavors of that dish. And so there are certain things that you can kind of switch and um, and substitute that um, obviously will not be 100% the same, but, you know, will certainly give you the spirit of the dish. So what I have done in the cookbook is provide recipes with um, re- ingredients such as uh, ketchup manis, uh, which is a very well-loved fermented sweetened soy sauce from Indonesia. And essentially, if you think of kind of soy sauce mixed with, um, you know, a lovely kind of palm sugar molasses, are flavoured with cloves and coriander and pepper and lovely spices. That's what ketchup manis is, and it's a real kind of art form um, in Indonesia to make it. Um, but I, certainly I know, I know in England, in some of the more rural areas, you know, it's a difficult ingredient to find. So what I did as part of my testing process was to um, learn how to make things like ketchup manis at home. And so I give, you know, a recipe of how to create that, that um, sweetened soy sauce flavouring by simply using light soy sauce and palm sugar together and simmering it on the stove for a few minutes. So there are certainly substitutes that you can create and it does give you that sense of that Indonesian wonderful kind of balance of flavours of the sweet and the sour and the heat and the umami. Um, But what I really wanted to ensure was that the recipes were accessible because I think for me, you know, Indonesian food hasn't had its time in the mainstream yet. You know, there have been some wonderful Indonesian ambassadors of the cuisine, one of whom is my mentor, Sri Owen. Uh, she's, you know, authored 15, uh, you know, cookbooks on Indonesian food. But, you know, it hasn't had its time like Thai food has or Vietnamese food or Malaysian food. So I wanted to make sure that people could really buy this book and to cherish it and to have recipes that they use in their kitchen time and time again. Um, and hopefully I've done that. So uh, that was kind of my aim. <laughs> Can we find some of these things in uh Asian groceries, for example, in in the Chinatowns of New York? Absolutely. Every ingredient in this book you would be able to find in Chinatown. Galangal? Candlenut? Galangal, yes. Uh, And and candlenut has a substitute with macadamia nut. You know, I I have provided some, you know, substitutes for things, but, um, you know, lemongrass or macroot lime leaf. These are things that you can find in your um, Asian grocer, absolutely. But also in some of these recipes, you know, the backroot lime leaf, as an example, um, in some recipes, you know, I've put down as optional because obviously it will add another layer of complexity in a dish. But, you know, without it, it will still be a really delicious meal. So I think um, that was kind of the key for me was to ensure that if you go to your main local supermarket, you should be able to pick up you know, I would say 95% of the ingredients. And every now and then there might be one like Galangal that you can't find. But in that instance, you can substitute it for ginger, which I think you should be able to find anywhere. So, um, I, yeah, but certainly at an Asian grocer, you'll, you'll, be, uh, you'll luck out and you'll probably find everything. <laughs> what about the other side of the equation? Are vegetables like tomatoes readily available throughout the archipelago? Yes, you know, t- t- tomatoes are um, something that are enjoyed a-, a lot, actually, in Indonesia. And, you know, there's one, uh, I've talked about tomato sambal before, but there's also um, tomatoes are kind of used uh, in quite a lot of the that hot chili relish sambal that I mentioned. And, you know, there's one particular one in Manado in Sulawesi, which is a very 
long and skinny island, but Manado is um, the, at the north of Sulawesi, and they love fresh flavors. They use things like lemon basil, which is just really citrusy and fragrant with their dishes. But, you know, they chop tomatoes in that sambal and serve them raw with some chilies and lime and shallots and, you know, finely uh, sliced garlic, and it's just absolutely divine. So there are in- very familiar ingredients that you'll find used in Indonesian cuisine, whether it be potatoes or carrots or cucumbers or mm. um, or tomatoes as well. Um, but tomatoes, well, tomato- tomatoes have such an interesting history, uh, beginning in the Americas, uh, brought over mm. by the, Sp- the Spanish to Europe from Mexico, Mesoamerica, and then becoming uh, a basis for Southern Italian cooking. And now... Mm-hmm. It's it's all over Asia as well. It well, is. It, it is, and and very. It's called globalization. It is, and what what was really lovely, what I found in every city or even smaller little town or village that I visited in in in, in Indonesia, you know, the the tradition really is for the Indonesian people will go to the fresh food market at about six a.m. in the morning. Um, to buy the best produce of the day. And you will find tomatoes there. Obviously, you'll find chilies and you'll find garlic and shallots and, you know, lots of, you know, the fresh fish and, and so on and chickens that have just been freshly slaughtered and all those kinds of things. But, you know, they, they prefer to go to a food market that is run by local people as opposed to kind of any large nationally run supermarkets. And, um, and that's just a really beautiful thing. So they buy their food fresh, you know, every morning to cook whatever they, they're going to cook for dinner that day. But you'll, you will find all of those ingredients so easily in Indonesia. And that, and that was really wonderful. And it's always in, you know, one large accessible place at the local food market. And every city has one. So it was really well, beautiful of, to see. Mm. One of the uh, the differences is the way we pronounce these words. You say tomato, I say tomato. You say shallot, <laughs> I say shallot. Uh, you include two different kinds of, of shallots in your recipes, banana shallots, which you might say banana, uh, and Thai shallots. And the president of the United States would say Thai shallots. What's the, the difference between them? Right. So a banana shallot is um, a shallot that's probably about the length of my index finger. It's kind of, um, you know, it's almost like the, the shape of, a, of an, you know, an almond-shaped eye. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of looking shallot. And it's weighs about, um, oh, I'm going to use grams here, so how to convert to ounces, but um, 50 to 75 grams. So what is that? That's probably, you know, uh, roughly about a quarter of a cup, kind of, you know, that kind of size. Um, whereas a Thai shallot is very, very small, probably like the size of my, you know, my thumb, a little bit smaller, and it's round like a ball. <laughs> and so um, the two, you know, they're, they're a little bit different in flavors. You know, um, the I find the small round Thai shallots to be ever so slightly a little bit sweeter than the larger banana shallots. But certainly in, in England, banana shallots are the shallots that you can easily find at every single supermarket. But, um, you know, for anyone that cooks, Indonesian food at home, you know, a shallot is a shallot is a shallot. So if you can find, you know, a different kind of shallot, whether it's a French shallot or a banana shallot or a Thai shallot, essentially they're kind of all the same. But um, if you imagine that the Thai shallots are little and round like a ball, then two Thai shallots will equal one larger shallot that's the size of my index finger. So you kind of, Indonesian food is very much about intuition. And I think what I loved as I was learning recipes from different people, including my family and, you know, random home cooks that I would meet and be introduced to, is that they don't use scales, they don't use cups, they don't use tablespoons. Things are measured by intuition, by feel. So, you know, a handful of shallots, 
um, you know, a pinky finger length of turmeric. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they'll, they'll kind of use a, a, a thumbnail full of, you know, uh, fermented shrimp paste and, and so on. And so it wasn't prescriptive at all. So as I was learning these recipes, I kind of had my chef head on and had to kind of throw that out because I was kind of saying, oh, how many chilies was that? And oh, how many shallots? And oh, you described a handful. I need to count that handful. And so I was kind of trying to get people to slow down to, to show me exactly because obviously when you're writing a cookbook, you need to be quite exact. But, you know, and one, and one person's handful is different than another's. Oh, yeah, exactly. And I've got very big hands. So, you know, so, and I'm quite tall for, for an Indonesian as well. So, you know, I had to kind of be quite, you know, what, how big is your hand, your hand by the way? So, um, and my grandmother also in her recipe books also put a bowl full of this or a handful of that. So, again, you know, a lot of testing had to take place to make sure that things were as they should be. But what is really wonderful about Indonesian cuisine is that the flavors that are used, so the flavor profiles, you've, you know, you've got garlic, shallots, chilies, lemongrass, ginger, galangal, and so on. They're such wonderful ingredients that marry so well together that, you know, if you use a slightly bigger shallot than I'm using, it's actually all going to be fine. It's all going to taste really good because those ingredients, you know, as a rough proportion of my handful, your handful, my thumb, your thumb, it all really ends up just working together because the technique of cooking is, you know, you're cooking out those ingredients in oil until they kind of evaporate a little bit. So your mommy's kind of coming in and you're bringing out that richness and the savoriness of the, of the spice paste. And then you're adding other lovely ingredients, whether it's fish or tofu or tempeh and so on. But, you know, the recipe is going to end up being, being delicious, I think, no matter what. Mm-hmm. You, you can season it at the end as well with a bit of tamarind or lime and, and so on. So... You know, it's quite flexible, I find, Indonesian cuisine. And, you know, everyone's sambal recipe is different and everyone's recipe for nasi goreng, the fried rice, is going to be different. And, and, that's, and that's the beauty of it. Well, how, uh, can, how far can people go in altering the ingredients without ruining a dish? Look, you know, I think, uh, I think if, if, a, if a recipe has, you know, if, if, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about rendang as an example, which is that, you know, beautifully tender, juicy chunks of meat in a, you know, caramelized curry that is, you know, it's reduced so much that there's only really a sediment of the sauce left in the end. But essentially what is in a, in a, in a beef rendang is you've got, you know, um, a, a slow cut, you know, slow cuts of um, cubed beef and then uh, coconut milk and a spice paste that's got, you know, chili, shallots, garlic, ginger, galangal, turmeric, ground coriander and ground cumin. Now, those... And you, wait, you know, and you call for cooking the, them for about two and a half hours, but I understand in Indonesia, uh, the slow, the, they're slow cooked for as much as eight hours. That's probably oh, yeah. not something that uh, people are going to throw together uh, on a weekend here in, in New York. right. right. So, the, you know, the reason for that is actually um, when I learnt rendang in uh, Padang in West Sumatra, which is the, the home of rendang, they're cooking um, rendang for, you know, 20 people or for, you know, maybe 50 people or for, for a lot of people. So the woks are huge. The, the woks mm. are, you know, the size of a small swimming pool or paddling pool, you know. <laughs> they're, they're, real, they're, they're really, really big and, you, you know, you could actually turn it into a paddling pool, really. So, you know, you're looking at these giant woks that are being kind of stirred with, you know, stirred and, and, and um, you know, every so often, really, for the, for the rendang. But, you know, it's, it's a huge amount of meat and it's a huge amount of sauce. And the reason why they're cooking it at such big quantities is because it does take a very long time um, and so if you're going to make rendang, you might as well make it for, for a 
Um, and, and, that, and that is why it can take, you know, six to eight hours. But also, there's a Well, eight hours seems to me overcooking any kind of meat or anything. Yeah, well, you know... Unless you're on a very low temperature. Yeah, well, you know, I, I find it quite interesting, I suppose, in terms of the way that we've trained our palates in the West versus, you know, the palates of, um, of Indonesia. I find that um, Indonesians really love to eat things very, very well done. So you'll never, you know, I like my steak medium rare, but you will never find an Indonesian, or very rarely, I, would, I should say traditionally, you wouldn't find it in a traditional Indonesian dish that someone would cook a, you know, a beef, a uh, cut of beef medium rare at all. You know, things are always kind of cooked to the point of well done and then a little bit extra. So what I found eating rendang in uh, Sumatra was that the meat was actually a little bit tougher than what, than, you know, than how we might like it, which is, you know, we want the meat to be tender and falling apart. And, and a part of the reason of, the, of that is for, for rendang, uh, the tradition of rendang, there is a ritual called merentau, which are the Minangkabau people of West Sumatra. So that's the people that live in Padang, where rendang is from. Um, they, uh, they, they are a matrilineal society. So houses and property are passed from mother to daughter. So the men of uh, the family are then um, encouraged to go wandering. So merentau is a kind of, in, in, in Indonesian, it translates to, you know, the act of wandering. So they, um, the mothers would cook rendang for their sons, and the act of making rendang preserves the beef. So when you're cooking the beef for that long and you're turning it into almost like a beef jerky, what ends up happening is they could wrap it in, um, you know, uh, you know, banana leaf, and then they would pop it into a biscuit tin or some sort of tin so that, that they would seal. And then the, the sons would take the rendang with them on very long journeys. And so the, the act of this wandering, um, where they were encouraged to find their fortune outside of Padang and outside of Sumatra. So many uh, Minangkabau men would travel to Java and to Bali or even into Singapore or Malaysia and try to find their fortune and success there with the hope that they would then bring that fortune back to Padang, where they're from, or back to West Sumatra. So rendang, actually, part of the process is really to caramelize the beef, but also to preserve it for very long journeys. And I met some people that would say that their rendang would last for up to a year. Now, I didn't try the rendang that they said that would last for up to a year without refrigeration. Wow. But, you know, um, that is this, that is the, the wonder of the dish, really, that, you know, um, the, the woman who I learned it from said hers would last for a week. And, you know, it depends on the person that you speak to. Some people say three months. So um, a, a lot of people would, would, will take rendang in these biscuit tins on pilgrimages to Mecca as well. So, you know, it, that, that's the wonder about um, rendang as a dish. And I think that's why cooking it for so long for Indonesians, to the point of where it becomes so crispy and so dry and dehydrated, it just means that it lasts a very long time. But for the people of West Sumatra, it's a reminder of home. So they carry these little parcels of rendang with them and eating it, I guess in the way that I feel about Indonesian food, it kind of transports them back to the place where they feel they belong. Mm. We'll, we'll talk about vegetables and desserts after we take a little break. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. We're in New York.
a little traditional Indonesian music. Um, before I get back to my conversation with Lara Lee, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to support the programming that we bring you on London Lopit at Large by calling right now 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to wbai.org. Becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy, is a great way to show your support without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy during today's show in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. If you call 516-620-3602 now or go to give2wbai.org, we would be happy to send you a copy of Coconut and Sambal by my guest, Lara Lee, as our way of saying thanks. Again, all you need to do is call 516-620-3602 or visit give2wbai.org to sign up to become a BAI buddy at the tax-deductible monthly amount of $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with to be taken out of your credit card, your debit card, or whatever is easiest for you. And then that's it. We will take care of the rest. So although please allow four to six weeks for delivery. Becoming a BAI buddy is a great way to contribute because it provides the station with a steady source of support. But however you choose to donate, the important thing is that you do your part to keep this show and this legendary radio station alive. The last station on the New York City radio dial that's completely listener sponsored. My guess is in London, they uh, have People there have to pay a license fee whether they listen to the BBC or not. We ask you as listeners to support us. We don't even take corporate underwriting or funding grants of any kind. So if you agree with us that independent media matters, we need your help to keep it going. One last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org online. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Big thanks from all of us to you. And with us now again is Lara Lee, who uh, uh, writes, does online cooking demonstrations, cooks Indonesian food for supper clubs, pop-ups, is catering. She has a catering program, uh, a company that she founded in 2016. And she has a new cookbook called Coconut and Sambal Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen. It's published by Bloomsbury. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, the vegetarian dishes that are celebrated at the Indonesian uh, dinner table. How is vegetarian cooking treated differently in Indonesia? Mm, so what is really wonderful about the Indonesian way of eating is how much they do respect and uh, love eating vegetables and tofu and tempeh and a vegetarian style of eating. So you'll find that the price of meat is quite high in Indonesia. So, um, you know, meat is kind of reserved for ceremonious occasions or festivals uh, for the, you know, for, for the average uh, Indonesian. Um, but they do have things, uh, these wonderful um, chickens called kampung chickens, which are like village chickens, and they run around the village. And, you know, so they're these free-range muscular chickens, and they provide everyone with eggs and you know, obviously with, with chicken for the, for the villagers. Um, and obviously living by, you know, it's a, it's a uh, maritime kind of country. So every island, you know, obviously uses the sea as another resource to, you know, to, so there's a wonderful kind of seafood culture. But at the heart of it, you know, vegetables are very accessible 
very affordable. And, you know, with the fresh food markets in every village and town and city, you know, it, it, vegetables are plentiful. So you will find um, on the majority of tables that vegetables do dominate, um, you know, in a beautiful way. And they're not treated as some sort of side dish as, you know, we might sometimes treat vegetables uh, in, in, in Western culture. You know, it, vegetables are really celebrated and can be as much of a main event as, you know, as, as meat might be uh, or, or chicken might be or fish. Um, but, but one very special ingredient to Indonesians is tempeh. I'm not sure if you've tried tempeh, Leonard. But yes, it of course. A, um, well, it's available here in, in New York if you go to oh. any Chinese restaurant, for example. And, and you write that soy proteins like tofu and tempeh are often their own dish in Indonesia instead of um, the way they're often used here to copy meat dishes. Mm, oh, yes. Uh, and, and particularly tempeh, I think, as a, you know, for the, those listening at home, if they haven't tried tempeh, tempeh is a fermented soybean cake that um, originated in Indonesia. So, you know, the Chinese uh, traders and migrants brought soybeans to Indonesia, you know, a thousand years ago. And what the Indonesians did was they, uh, you know, use a, a particular type of mold to uh, help ferment uh, and um, as, as a starter, really, for the soybeans. And it basically uh, helped to make the soybeans digestible and they were fermented in banana leaf. And what you what came out of it is this kind of soybean cake known as tempeh, which is um, really nutty and uh, firm in texture and really delicious, particularly when uh, they're kind of sliced into kind of, you know, thin slices and, and fried to give it this kind of crispy ex exterior. But tempeh is one of those dishes that, you know, there are so many different types of tempeh dishes. So, you know, there's um, sambal, uh, tempeh sambal goreng, which is like a tempeh mixed with a, a fried gore, uh, sambal kind of a spice paste. You've got sweet soy tempeh, which is kind of mixed with palm sugar and ketchup manis. And then tempeh that is sliced very, very thin and fried and turned into um, a cracker uh, known mm. as kripik. So, you know, there are so many different ways that Indonesians uh, use tempeh, but it is such a high uh, protein product. It's got, I think, all eight essential amino acid, uh, acids and, um, you know, it, it's a very, very healthy superfood. So, and it's very affordable in Indonesia. So you'll find tempeh being used and celebrated and it's absolutely delicious because it, it absorbs all the flavors that it's cooked with, but it's also very nutty and toasty in flavor itself. So it's something that, you know, I absolutely love to eat and keep in my fridge in London all the time too. Well, it's become more and more popular in this country uh, among vegetarians and vegans, especially. There are companies that specialize in selling tofu and tempeh products. Uh, mm. But, but uh, uh, rice is another major uh, aspect of Indonesian cuisine, as opposed to the bread-based cultures of the West. Indonesia's is, is a rice-based cuisine. Um, now, most of us can cook rice here, but are there any special things that we should know about cooking rice as a professional? Ah, yes. You know, I think one of the, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you've seen this kind of viral uh, video go online by um, a guy called Uncle Roger, but um, there's, a, there's a thing happening in the UK at the moment, I think worldwide, where um, I guess uh, different uh, chefs are being mocked for the way they might cook fried rice around the world. Um, because, you know, inherently in Asian culture, in particular, particularly in Indonesia, Rice, uh, well, rice is eaten with every meal in Indonesia, but um, a dish like fried rice or nasi goreng in Indonesia 
kind of was born out of the fact that there is always leftover rice. Uh, and that's because rice is eaten with every meal. You know, half of your plate will be rice. Um, and for many Indonesians, they say if they have not eaten rice, they have not eaten. So it's very, very important. But that means that there is always leftover rice. But because Indonesians don't waste anything, they will always, you know, use that rice for another dish. So that is why you'll often find that um, Indonesian fried rice or nasi goreng is eaten for breakfast in the morning. So I think one of the key tips that I could ever give anyone when they're cooking a fried rice dish is that you really shouldn't use freshly cooked rice. So, you know, rice that has just been cooked uh, will be steaming. It'll be full of moisture still, which is obviously lovely when you're eating fluffy rice to go with a curry. But if you're using it for something like nasi goreng, the fr- you know, the fried rice dish, um, what will happen is your rice will become soggy and it will um, end up, you know, becoming quite oily and it will kind of absorb all of the sauce that you're cooking it with. And you kind of end up getting this slightly flabby dish, which is still delicious, but texturally a little bit mushy like porridge. So if you're using cold leftover rice or rice that has been cooked a few hours beforehand, then you're going to get a really lovely, you know, uh, nasty goreng that, um, you know, where each rice grain is, is, is its own uh, kind of individual thing. And so you get that kind of lovely texture of the rice and you don't lose that when you're eating it. And obviously with, you know, a lovely fried egg on top, the nasi goreng and some yeah. Indonesian crackers on the side, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a sensory heaven. But, uh, but that's probably one of my, my biggest tips for making a, a successful nasi goreng is leftover cold rice. Well, mm. rice is also a part of a very popular dish you find in Chinese recipes, uh, Chinese restaurants, kanji, and there are kanjis in in uh, Indonesia as well. Uh, aren't isn't it part of the yes. distinctive street food culture that we would find oh, in parts yes. of Indonesia? Absolutely, and uh, you know I have a recipe for my book for, for a chicken uh, rice porridge. We we call it bubur in Indonesian. And uh, it is eaten also for breakfast. It's one of uh, Indonesians love a heavy breakfast. So that kind of, you know, that really lovely uh, rice that has been cooked for hours with a chicken stock and some chicken. um, Or, you know, they also do, you know, vegetable, vegetable ones with corn and, you know, vegetable stock as well. But it's something that is really loved. And it's a real comfort food for Indonesians. And you'll often find that when mothers are weaning their children, um, you know, bubur or the rice porridge, similar to congee in, uh, in, in Chinese cuisine, is what they will wean, you know, their babies with. So that's one of the first foods that they will try is this lovely, softened, you know, delicious and fragrant um, rice porridge, you know, that has been flavored with, you know, slices of ginger and, you know, a real subtle warmth of, you know, garlic or shallots kind of running through it. And um, for babies, you know, it's just a, a really wonderful thing to eat. So, um, for my own son, I've got a 15-month-old baby who's currently being put to bed now by my by my husband at the moment. I can kind of hear him through the door, through the door. But you know, as part of part of uh, the joy for me when right. I was weaning it's, him was it's nighttime where you are, right? It's almost it nine is o'clock. nighttime. It's nearly 7 p.m. But that's oh, fine. Seven. Got, okay. Yeah, nearly seven. Nearly seven. So, um, but yeah, you know, when I was weaning him, I was giving him, you know, I, I dulled down the spices a little bit, but I, you know, I gave him um, some nasi goreng and I gave him some bubur, some, you know, some rice porridge. And, uh, you know, the other day um, I had some uh, beef rendang in the freezer, which has seven chilies in it. So bear in mind that that is quite spicy. Um, but I just gave him a very little bit with a little bit of rice because I really want to introduce him to, you know, um, I, without giving him a stomachache, of course, but I really want to introduce him to Indonesian flavors. And, um, 
And, you know, through my entire pregnancy and while breastfeeding, I was eating the hottest of chilies and the hottest of sambals, and I've never, never stopped doing that. So I think um, he's been born with a taste for hot food, and it's in his DNA as well. But, you know, it's a really lovely um, – rice porridge is a really lovely lovely dish, and it starts from very, very young, really, for Indonesians. And I think that's why it's such, considered such a nostalgic comfort food as well. If you were to travel tomorrow to – Kupang or Jakarta or, or Bali, what dish would you want to eat first? Uh, what do you miss most living outside of Indonesia? And would it be one of the comfort foods? Oh, yes. I, I know the first thing I would order would be bakso. And bakso is uh, a really famous street food that originated in Jakarta, in Java, actually, but you'll find it all over Indonesia now. And it's a, it's a soup with um, meatballs. The meatballs can be uh, typically beef, but they can be sometimes pork, but usually beef because most areas where it's served are predominantly Muslim. But um, it's actually, in fact, it's um, when Barack Obama spent some of his childhood in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and it's actually his favorite Indonesian dish as well, funnily enough. But, um, but yeah, this bakso soup is served in a, in a beef broth that has been, you know, cooked for several hours. And you've got these gorgeous kind of spongy meatballs that are kind of sitting inside of the, the soup. Sometimes there are some tender cuts of slow-cooked beef in there as well. And then there are noodles and some choy sam or pak choy, um, you know, some chilies as well. But what it's seasoned with is, is what brings it all together. So you'll find that... Um, the dish will be seasoned with rice wine vinegar or rice, you know, like similar to kind of any kind of white wine vinegar. So rice vinegar, a little bit of that fermented sweet soy sauce called ketchup manis. Sometimes it'll have lime squeezed into it. Um, and it's just kind of wonderful balance of like slurping your soup and adding your own seasoning and kind of bringing your own flavors to it. And, you know, you'll find them wheeled on street food carts all over Indonesia on these gorgeous, like brightly colored wooden kind of, you know, five foot long carts, um, but you know they're it's made fresh every day, and you know you pull out a plastic stool from the you know from the street food vendor's um, kind of cart, and you sit and eat it on the side of the road. And even though it's hot and dry there, I think the temperature is kind of averaging between thirty to forty degrees, which is I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but just imagine that that's enough to keep you sweating all day long. <laughs> very very hot and humid weather. But somehow these soups are just really refreshing, um, you know, on a hot day in Indonesia. So I would have, yeah, bakso, the spiced meatball soup. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm talking with Lara Lee, who's written a cookbook called Coconut and Sambal, Recipes from My Indonesian Kitchen, which is published by Bloomsbury. My executive producer, Jesse Lent, and his girlfriend made the pandan cake from your cookbook earlier this week. They said it was delicious. How do Indonesian desserts differ from American sweets? Sure. So oh, I'm so glad she made the pandan cake because that is like one of my favorite cake recipes. And actually, I do a lot of catering and uh, I often make the pandan cake or there's a variation in the book for coconut and raspberry cake. And I make that for a lot of weddings I cater and it is always the biggest hit. It's such a good cake. So it's kind of my go to recipe. I'm so glad to hear that she made it. But, um, you know, in Indonesia, dessert, the, the idea of dessert culture is very, very different to how we would consider it in the West. So the way that um, sweets are eaten is not really at the end of a meal. At the end of a meal, you might have a plate of fruit, and that will kind of be like a nice way to kind of um, freshen your palate and to cleanse your palate. Um, but in terms of sweets, sweets are really eaten 
all day long. And so ranging from, you know, when people go to the, the food market early in the morning to pick up all of their, you know, fresh fresh uh, food, their fresh fruits, their fresh vegetables and so on, they'll also pick up this lovely thing called Jajanan Pasar, which are these tiny little cakes and sweets that are so cute and adorable and so colourful, vibrant pinks and pandan coloured greens and yellows and so on. And um, quite often these sweets will be made with rice flour or glutinous rice flour. So they're often, um, you know, gluten-free and, you know, made with all really good ingredients, apart from the fact that they're packed full of palm sugar. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, all very, very natural stuff. But, you know, um, that you'll, you'll find that you'll have a coffee in the morning and you might have, uh, you know, or a hot tea. You might have your rice porridge or your nasi goreng for breakfast. But then to kind of finish it off, you might have, uh, you know, some really gorgeous Indonesian sweets that might be like a glutinous rice ball that's filled with palm sugar that has been boiled. So um, when you pop it in your mouth, there's just this kind of wonderful explosion of palm sugar syrup in your mouth. Or um, they quite often use things like uh, that we might not consider using in desserts, like sweet potato or pumpkin and kind of savory ingredients in sweets. But it really does balance out that sweetness that you get from the palm sugar. So they're really clever at kind of mixing coconut flavors and sugary flavors and savory flavors together to produce these gorgeous little sweets. But, you know, some of the other dishes that you'll find eaten all day long, you know, um, uh, things like uh, pisang goreng, which is a banana fritter. So, you know, you'll again get these kaki lemas, which are the street food vendors kind of wheeling their, their carts down the road and they'll be frying these. Uh, banana fritters that you can just buy off the street and just you know eat on the on the on the you know the corner of the road. Um, but there's also this kind of act in Indonesia called nongkrong, which is basically um, it means hanging out. And when you're hanging out with anyone, you must always be snacking. So whenever I would come to meet people, there'd be a platter of sweets to meet me, you know, uh, you know, to, to greet me really, to welcome me. So, you know, you kind of find that sweets are just eaten all day long. It's just a real part of the culture as opposed to it being more of a dessert. So, well, why do you think yeah. Indonesian food has been so slow to catch on in the West? Is it because the preparation tends to be more labor intensive than uh, its neighboring countries, Vietnam, Thailand? Mm, you know, I think it comes down to being um, that it depends on where you are, really, because, you know, I find growing up in Sydney, Australia, um, you know, the proximity uh, to Indonesia, you know, of Australia to Indonesia, it's only, well, I say it's only, but it's a five or six hour flight, which for Australians is actually quite short. <laughs> so um, there's actually quite a big Indonesian community in Australia and also um, a lot of Australians when they go on holidays abroad you know, Indonesia or Bali will be one of the first places that they go to because it's, you know, so close. Uh, and the great Australia beaches. To get there. And, yeah, great beaches. So, you know, um, in Australia where I grew up, you know, in Sydney alone, I think there were 40 or 50 Indonesian restaurants. So it was quite plentiful. But, you know, coming to London, there's only two restaurants. And I think the population of Indonesians in, in the UK is less than 10,000. So... I don't think, but, you know, if you hop over across to Holland, so the Netherlands, um, obviously right. being a Dutch colony, there's a huge amount of Indonesian supermarkets and Indonesian community and Indonesian restaurants. And so, you know, Indonesian food is really everywhere in, 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 in Holland. So I think depending on where you travel, uh, you know, Indonesian food is either known or not known at all. But in the places where it's not known, I think it's just down to, you know, sheer numbers. That, you know, there are 
perhaps a smaller Indonesian community and therefore less ambassadors of the cuisine to promote the cuisine, to open restaurants, to write books about Indonesian food. And, um, you know, I mentioned my mentor, Sri Owen, before, who's 85 now, but I think in the 70s she started writing cookbooks about Indonesian food and, and did so for a few decades before passing the baton to me, you know, to students. Um, but, you know, I, I think what Indonesian food has needed is to have more ambassadors to kind of shout about the cuisine to say, hey, guys, you know, this is actually something that you can cook at home. Because, that, yes, there are some labour-intensive recipes, but there are so many recipes that you can whip up in probably under, you know, 20 or 30 minutes as long as you've got the ingredients in your fridge. And, and there's also things like... Um, you know, the gado gado salad, which is a vegetable salad with peanut sauce, provided you have peanut, you know, peanuts or peanut butter in your pantry, you know, and a few key ingredients like chilies and garlic, you can make a peanut sauce. And then you can swap out and change, you know, um, the vegetables that I have in my recipe for whatever you have in your fridge. And, you know, you can kind of make your own do-it-yourself gado gado. So there are things that can be substituted. And Laura, I, have, and I have no time left, but I was wondering, has the pandemic hit the Indonesian islands? In, in 30 seconds. Yes, it has, sadly. And I know that um, I have some friends in Bali that were saying that there were only two ventilators on the island of Bali. I think that's changed now, but it sadly has. And it is close to tourism to the end of the year. But I really hope that, you know, they can uh, turn things around next year. So I'm constantly, you know, hoping and praying for them that things things, things turn around. Mm. Lara Lee's uh, cookbook, which is beautifully illustrated, is Coconut and Sambal, Recipes for My Indonesian Kitchen, published by Bloomsbury. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you so much, Leonard. It was a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for his invaluable help in preparing today's interview and for all of the important work he does throughout the week. And a big thank you as well to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson. If you are new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And don't forget to check out LeonardLopateAtLarge on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or just want to say hello, my email address is lettertlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you for your support for the station. If you care about Leonard Lopate at Large and all of the great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep 100% listener-sponsored radio alive on the New York City dial. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by calling 516-620-3602 or by going, going to give to WBAI.org. And as I mentioned at the half, if you become a BAI buddy during today's show, by making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of London Located Large, we would be happy, delighted, in fact, to send you a copy of Coconut and Sambal by my guest, Lara Lee. But please make sure to make that contribution in the name of London Located Large. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. Join us again on Monday when Robin Simon will discuss her new documentary, Do No Harm, that looks at the alarming suicide rate among medical professionals. Stay safe out there. Have a great weekend.